Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Guys, it's me. I'm here to get you out. Snake. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hello, I'm Brian. Today's episode is Let the Legend Come Back to Life, where we trot out our horses out to Afghanistan to kick off the first chapter of 2015's Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. from Cyprus to Port Kasim, the story transitions into Chapter 1, Revenge. From Port Kasim, Venom Snake makes his way overland through the Khyber Pass, and eventually on March 21st, 1984, Snake and Ocelot ride out like it's Lawrence of fucking Arabia, and the first mission, Phantom Limbs, commences. Since Ocelot saved our ass in the prologue and is about to set you off now to bring the legend back to life, Let's talk about our duplicitous cowboy cosplayer, now voiced by Troy Baker. You're a legend in the eyes of those who live on the battlefield. That's why you have to handle this mission yourself. Put those nine years behind you and return this big boss. Before we dive into Ocelot, let's give Troy Baker a moment. He's a legendary voice actor and perhaps the best performance in this game. Baker has been in countless media at this point, anime and U.S. cartoons, and every video game series imaginable. Notably, he was Joel in The Last of Us, Sam Drake in the Uncharted series, Booker D. Witt from Bioshock Infinite, and one that hits home for me, Talion from the Middle-Earth Shadows of Mordor games. He's also voiced countless comic characters for shows and games, most notably Hawkeye and Loki on the Marvel side of things, and the Joker, Jason Todd, and Lego Batman over at DC. He's done a ton of anime work from Lupin to One Piece to Naruto, though I mostly know him as Greed from Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. He was also, let me look here. I have, it's hard to pick through somebody's IMDb on the fly. Treymaker is is kind of of all the, like the, uh, I don't know what the pantheon of voice actors would be, but like he came along later than some of them. Like he was still working for, I mean, his IMDb is gigantic. He was definitely more of an anime voice actor, like a, a dub guy in the late 2000s. But yeah, 2013 is is the year of Troy Baker, as as uh, my friend Matt always called it, which was when he was in within 
three and a half months, he was the lead in Bioshock Infinite and the lead in The Last of Us, the two biggest games of the year. And he was also the Joker in Batman Arkham Origins in that year, which is crazy. Uh, I think he's in he's in uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen also, although that came out before, but there was like the, the sequels to that came out. Then he was, within two years after that, he got to be, he was uh, Arkham Knight slash Jason Todd, spoilers, <laughs> in Arkham Knight. Spoilers for that game that if you play 10 minutes of, you know exactly who the Arkham Knight is. Um, mm-hmm. Who else was he? Yeah, he was in Middle Earth. He was in Shadow of Mortar. Who else was he in 2015? Hold on. Just this guy's just, um, he kind of became the go-to gruff white man voice, but with, but like, you know, like, has like depth to his voice and is like good actor as, as uh, best evidenced by his hours upon hours of uh, cassette tape stuff and, and Phantom Pain, which is like actually compelling to listen to. And it's just him talking. That's the best, really the best uh, barometer for a voice actor is Can they just like read something and you're, you're entertained? Um, oh yeah. He's famous for, uh, I think being the only actor to be the Joker and Batman because he was in the Lego Batman games and he was in the Telltale Batman game. He was a uh, very good Bruce Wayne slash mm-hmm. Batman, obviously. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> he's in Mortal Kombat. Yeah, I said he, he's he's very he's excellent in, in uh, Uncharted. He's in Death Stranding, which I just I just saw him in. Mm-hmm. I believe he is well, obviously he's in The Last of Us Part Two for as long as he's in it. I believe. Oh, yeah. No, I I forgot. The first thing I remember him from is Mass Effect 3. He plays Kai Lang, a little ninja bastard that everyone hates. He's an awful character that everyone despises. So it kind of uh, <laughs> it kind of um, soured me against him when he started coming out like a year later and being important things. Uh, Turnbaker's just like a big he's like a, a big name voice actor now. Like he's mm-hmm. he's it like he's just an important Voice actor, like he's he's up with Nolan North, and like uh, what's her name, Jessica? Uh, is Jessica Hale? Damn it, Jennifer Hale. Uh, Jennifer. Jennifer Hale. Hale. Yeah. But yeah, so like that's that's really like where she is now, or where he is now. He's in that class, that top class of like the big. I mean, he's the only. You think about it. He's Death Stranding is all actors. Like it's all it's all Kojima's friends and also Troy Baker. He's also there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, big fan of him. He's just it's it's like saying I don't know. I guess saying big fan of him is like oh, I'm a big Harrison Ford fan. I'm like oh really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, I'm a big fan of this extremely popular guy who's in all this important stuff. Like uh, I love George Clooney. <laughs> Anyways, Troy Baker. He's great. He's very good in this. Ocelot did not physically appear in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, making it unique in the canonical saga. He's back as a middle-aged man here, halfway to the Revolver Ocelot we know from MGS1, but a ways removed from Commander Ocelot from MGS3. His hair is graying and his trademark mustache is starting to take shape. He wears a brown duster jacket and cowboy boots, the spitting image of Lee Van Cleef for a few dollars more. He does have a red scarf around his neck, calling back to his Gru Ocelot unit from Snake Eater as well. Ocelot plays a very different role in this game than others. This is the only game in which he is not some type of antagonist. You do not fight him in a meaningful capacity, joining Metal Gear Solid 2 in that regards. And in fact, he's ostensibly working for you, making his first appearance as a codec contact in the series. In fact, Kojima has spoken of making Ocelot 
this series' most duplicitous character and a triple agent in his sleep, the straight man of the story, the only one on even keel and not on some twisted revenge arc, separating himself from Kaz, Snake, Big Boss, Skullface, Eli, and Zero. Making Ocelot that narrative center coheres well with the deceptive nature of this game. Baker himself likened Ocelot to Sid of the Final Fantasy series, someone who appears differently in every game and serves a different purpose. Kojima did want to make Ocelot a deployable buddy in this game, but that was scrapped in the end. Goes without saying that that could have been rad as hell. It would have been too powerful. Like, nobody would have used Quiet, so if you had Ocelot sit there being like, it's high noon and shooting people and shit. I imagine it would be very similar to maybe like some of the Peace Walker co-op stuff where it's just like two soldiers working at it. Cause I can't, cause all the other buddies like serve a very specific purpose, like it, whether it's sniping or traversal or whatnot um, to just have another guy running around and shooting. I imagine it would work similar to um, the co-op system did in Peace Walker. My vision of it is he's like the mysterious stranger from fallout. He doesn't, act, he's not actually with you, but every, I don't know. 10, 15 minutes, he just shows up at a cutscene and shoots and uh, duels somebody on, on screen and kills them for you. And that that could be anybody. That could be Sahelanthropus. That that would actually be really fun. He has like a magic bullet. He only needs a six or whatever. Yeah. In the MGS timeline, the last time we saw, nay heard, Ocelot was on the phone call at the end of MGS3 with reveals he was working for the CIA and would continue to pose as a Soviet GRU operative and that he, not Eva, walked away with the real philosopher's legacy. Well, half of it. The other half would be recovered by Ocelot in 1970. He also gave the U.S. Granin's designs for a walking bipedal tank that surely won't matter at all. (laughs) Ocelot was part of Zero's original Patriots unit before it became known as Cypher. He was there mostly for Big Boss, and when Big Boss and Zero went separate ways because of Les Enfants-Terribes, he only had limited contact with Zero from then on. But after the attack on Mother Base in 1975, Zero contacted Ocelot one last time, which is one of the secret cassette tapes at the end of this game. In this tape, Zero clues Ocelot in on the Venom Snake deception, to which Ocelot has mixed feelings given how Big Boss reacted to Les Enfants Terribles. He begrudgingly joined onto the plan and also begrudgingly teamed up with Kaz at Zero's request, though both Ocelot and Kaz were doing this for love and safety of Big Boss, currently comatose. Otherwise, Ocelot remained outwardly a loyal Soviet soldier, fighting in Africa and the Middle East before the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. In this time, he'd meet Sergei Gerlukovich of Metal Gear Solid 2 notoriety, as well as fine-tune his torture skills, which he picked up from Volgan in Metal Gear Solid 3. As chief grew interrogator in the Afghan theater, he became feared by the local Mujahideen. For that, they named him Shalashaska. Following the events at the hospital in Cyprus, Ocelot becomes an active player in Snake and Kaz's new military outfit, Diamond Dogs. He doesn't particularly like Miller, and the two will bicker through this game and eventually part ways after. Ocelot remaining loyal to Big Boss and his war against Zero, while Kaz joins first Venom and then later Solid Snake in his efforts to oppose Big Boss. Despite their differences, they both serve Venom Snake in this game as his top two generals. Kaz is the soldier, Ocelot the spy. And calling back to our Big Boss Odin analogy from Metal Gear Solid 3, Kaz and Ocelot very much serve as Odin's two crows, Hugin and Munin, who travel the Nine Realms and bring intel back to the All-Father. Yeah, I, um, 
it's weird. It's it's. I feel bad because again, you. I don't know if this is on purpose because you you come into this game. You have if, especially I play Peace Walker. I think I replayed it between Ground Zeroes coming out and this coming out, or I did something with it because I definitely remember playing it again. But you have this. You know, you come into it. Um, it's like a push and pull. You come into this game as a fan of the big boss games. Really, you love Cause and you just want good things to happen to Cause and they don't. But you come into this as a Metal Gear fan, you're like, hey, that's Ocelot. I want to listen to Ocelot. Fuck you, Cause. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's really what happened to me a lot for a lot of the game. It would be like, hey, what's Ocelot think about this? And I just would ignore Cause. Or I'd go up well, to he- I'd go up to Ocelot and be like and just would like or I'd I'd call him all the time and be like, hey, there's a rock here. You know, just whatever you have to say to Ocelot, <laughs> just to hear what his opinions on it. Because it's, yeah, like you said, you don't get, this is a resource you do not get at any other point in the series. It's all Ocelot all the time. And considering he's um, the most important and best character in the series, it's nice to get, you know, nice to get that uh, camaraderie with him. They're very good mm-hmm. friends, him and Snake. They're just good friends. <laughs> Yeah, when uh, we find their skeletons sucking each other off in some, like, ruin, you know, a hundred years from now, they were just being friends, sucking each other off. Just being pals. So with that, let's begin exploring Afghanistan. Before even beginning your mission, Asla gives you a brief tutorial on using your iDroid, binoculars, and the map, as well as laying out a good initial strategy for this game. Infiltrate the base up ahead to gather intel on Kaz's exact location, and go from there. He gives you Kaz's sunglasses, the only remnants left after the ambush that led to Kaz's capture and the death of his men. And then, Ocelot sets you off with these iconic lines. Now go! Let the legend come back to life. We aren't going to break down missions in full, but I do want to point out that the village where Kaz is found in, Gwandai Town, means sunrise or dawn, the same meaning as Rasviat the opening target of Metal Gear Solid 3, where you rescue Sokolov and later meet Eva. In order for this mimetic copy of Big Boss to be to bring that legend back to life, he is going to walk through the phantom footsteps of Big Boss's past, the mission that would wind up titling him as such. It's good. It's short compared to a lot of, other, a lot of the other big story missions. It's shorter, but it's a good... Um I mean, it's, I can't. This is the reason. It's the reason they use this for like the the uh, E3 video, mm-hmm. the showcase they had for it, where it's just a nice kind of condensed area where you could do all the stuff you do in MDS Five, MPSV. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So I, I like it. I like it fine. Yeah, I, I don't. It was. It's fun enough. Yeah, it starts you out on a horse, so you immediately are there. Um, you have to get through one outpost on your way to like the town you're going to look for the intel from. Yeah. Um, it preps you in terms of. These uh, soldiers are speaking Russian uh, for the most part, um, and you can't understand it. And then you start learning, oh, you have to actually capture a translator to actually start understanding these people, um, which is a very fun mechanic that will come into play later. Also, it might be a sign, might be an early sign that uh, this is not Big Boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go, because he knows some Russian. Big Boss knows Russian. Yeah, he knows yes. Russian. Yeah. That's actually a really good call. I hadn't flagged that, but he absolutely does know Russian. We knew from Metal Gear Solid 3. Uh, and then it also tells you, you know, you should seek high ground, um, classic Obi-Wan style. And that way you can actually look at um, the outpost or whatever encampment you're about to infiltrate, mark as many people and then work your way in. Um, so it's a very nice way to kind of get your feet wet. Um, you can take your horse and duck on the side of your horse to get around outposts so people don't spot you. Um, it's very simple, but it's very to the point, which is nice. 
In Guandai Town, Snake finds Kaz handcuffed to a wall. He's missing his left foot and right arm, and it's somewhat ambiguous whether he's blind or not too. He technically has photophobia, but his eyes are described as clouded. Before we get on with Kaz's extraction, let's do our Kaza Hira Miller breakdown for this game, once again voiced by Robin Atkin Downs. Snake. Why are we still here? Just to suffer. Every night, I can feel my leg and my arm, even my fingers. The body I've lost, the comrades I've lost, won't stop hurting. It's like they're all still there. Kazahira Miller returns from Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, now sporting the Benedict name, which gets properly canonized in this game. It had appeared in the Metal Gear Solid official mission handbook back in 1998 and was referenced in the Metal Gear Solid 4 database that came alongside that game. Almost everyone on the quote-unquote good side of this ga- in this game has two names in their credits, Punished and Venom, Revolver and Shalashaska, Kazahira and Benedict. Wonder if that's hinting at both the angels and demons in this outer heaven. Anyway, Kaz is a double amputee now as mentioned, and spends most of the game garbed in a trench coat with vest, bandolier, and shirt and tie visible underneath. Brown slacks and black military-style boots finish his outfit. He has a prosthetic for his missing left foot, but nothing for his right arm. It's just an empty sleeve, which vaguely reminds me of Oron from Final Fantasy X. He uses a cane in his left hand to help walk. I wonder if that's not a deliberate reference to Oren, but like a reference to him as a wandering master of a samurai. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's... Very much could be. Yeah. I'm sure Oren gets it from like some Kurosawa film or something like that as well yeah. that I haven't seen. Yeah. His eyes, like I said up top, almost read as if he's blind, but technically he's described as having photophobia, a discomfort of light. As such, he's basically in sunglasses from the moment you save him, regardless of being indoors or nighttime. His eyes seem better but inhumane at the end of this game, which could be a result of him doing some parasite therapy once Code Talker is brought on board. After the destruction of MSF's mother base, Kaz recovered relatively quickly from his injuries, unlike Big Boss and Venom Snake. He was contacted by a Weekend Zero, who was already suffering from Skullface's parasite attack, to tell Miller that he had no hand in the attack on MSF. Zero then funded Miller's ongoing mercenary activity, ensured that Big Boss was being taken care of, and that they'd eventually be reunited to rebuild what they started with MSF. Kaz gladly took this aid, but he still felt Zero and Cypher were partially responsible for the fall of MSF, and he flat out told Zero that after him and Boss defeat Skullface, they'd come after him. Zero didn't really seem too worried about it, though. Kaz went to Rhodesia in 1976, fighting in the Rhodesian Bush War, or rather, the Zimbabwe War for Liberation. Just wanted to call this out because one Frank Yeager, aka Grey Fox, fought out here as well. It was in 1979 in Rhodesia where Frank would kill the parents of Naomi Hunter and then take the little girl on as his adopted sister. Otherwise, Miller spent his time training revolutionaries and dissidents the world over, slowly reforming a unit which would go on to become Diamond Dogs. Kaz was training Mujahideen soldiers in Afghanistan in 1984, 
but he was also there with an ulterior motive. He had tracked Huey there, Huey allegedly having played a key part in setting up Mother Base's destruction at the end of Ground Zeroes. It was here that he was captured after an assault by the Skull's parasite unit and would lose his limbs in this battle. Kaz is on his own revenge arc in this game, not unlike Big Boss, Venom Snake, and Skullface, and like them, he now has his Phantom Pains too, missing parts of himself that serve as a reminder of what was taken away. And like everyone else's revenge, Kaz's quest for revengeance will ring hollow, or wind up incomplete, as we'll get to as we cover this game. I like that, uh, and I remember thinking this distinctly when it came out, that I, I like that um, it takes Kaz like t- a decade to build up a small fraction of Mother Base's power because he just doesn't have Big Boss's competence and charisma and like his ability to just lead. He's kind of a intense weirdo. So I think it, it, it I like that it took him a long time to to build up a small force for Big Boss to use. And then Big Boss rebuilds it in like within a few months to like huge country size levels. Not even Big Boss, someone just wearing Big Boss's skin manages to rebuild it immediately and you wonder if there's a little bit of i don't know resentment with that like or if cos really is just like a true believer right you know if if he's not a true believer then nobody is i suppose Mm -hmm. um which i guess is sort of the tragedy of his character because that explains why he he gets he's just kind of thrown aside at the start of the metagross solid series like he just Nobody, he's not taken seriously. He's not, he's just like a, he's literally a, used, his image is used as to, to placate Snake. It's not even, like, he's not even worth keeping alive. I was going to say, there's actually kind of a weird parallel there in that Liquid Snake wore the skin of Master Miller in yeah. that Metal Gear Solid 1. And now Kaz is like all in on this guy who's wearing the skin of Big Boss, essentially. Yeah. And then am I misremembering that Ocelot kills him or was it just supposed to be Liquid? I think it's supposed to be liquid, but I don't I don't think they actually say it. They just say he was found dead. Um, but it's implied, I think, in Liquid's codec calls that he was the one who actually did it. OK, yeah, I, it, it, it would work. I mean, he wasn't found with a, a gun, a gunshot wound in his forehead. So maybe it wasn't Ocelot. <laughs> Two bullets in the skull. He wasn't found at high noon in front of a saloon. So Ocelot's like, that's disgusting. I would never kill somebody any other way than that. OK, Corral. No, I, I just like I like that cause his ultimate like I think he's a character that anyone who played this era of game has a lot of uh, attachment to and just uh, we, we like him. But it ends up being kind of him. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the point of cause is that his truly his true belief in like the rhetoric of, of this stuff makes him kind of useless. Like nobody takes him seriously. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Where everyone else is a duplicitous snake playing playing everyone against each other, even even the snakes themselves. Cause is just like a aside from like Huey, he's the game does not I wouldn't I don't say the game despises him, but the game does not he's kind of a, a joke character almost. Like he's mm-hmm. not his wants and needs are, are sort of jettisoned because he's he just he is too he believes too extremely. And so he just is not of use to anybody really really this whole game he's just kind of sad i i just feel bad for cause the entire game he didn't deserve this there's a bit where basically anytime like big bot or venom snake has a decision and ocelot and uh 
Kaz are on opposite sides or giving different advice. Almost always the canonical choice in this game is Ocelot's side. Um, The most obvious is uh, sparing quiet rather than killing her. Um, So um, take that what you will. It's like, yeah, Kaz isn't really respected in the same way, but I think that that's why he always needed someone like Big Boss to lead um, because he just does not have that kind of presence or charisma. He's a follower, and this game... This series is not like followers. No. Once you have Kaz on your back, your job is to exfiltrate. Ocelot lays down an LZ for you just over a bridge across from the village. I believe on the very first playthrough, you do have to use this landing zone because it leads into a story sequence. But on subsequent playthroughs, you can change the LZ to elsewhere and avoid what comes next entirely. What comes next, of course, is... The Skulls, as we've alluded to, are XOF's special strike force. Skullface's special little boys. (laughs) Also known as the Parasite Unit, the Skulls make up half of the quote-unquote boss battles in this game, pitting Venom Snake against four Parasite Unit members in various encounters. Several of the Skull encounters can be avoided or run away from, but a few require you to defeat them for mission completion. Visually, the Skulls have decayed or Faded skin all over, not unlike Skullface, with glowing green eyes in addition to gas masks, additional body armor, and gear. The skulls were created by Skullface and Code Talker in the early 1980s, using parasite technology recovered by Skullface from the end during Operation Snake Eater. If the host body accepted the parasites, they'd be granted several supernatural abilities as we see depicted in this game. In exchange for these powers, their cognitive functions were essentially destroyed, leaving them zombies to be directed at Skullface's will. Some of the, these additional abilities include maximizing their sprinting speed so they appear to be teleporting, incredible strength, able to absorb significant damage, and being able to leap out of any hot zone like the Hulk. The parasites comprise their skin when they appear, which is why Code Talker calls these specific parasites the one that covers. Perhaps an obvious note is that this parasite therapy is also what saved Quiet's life following her being burned alive in in the hospital prologue, but we will save the Quiet discussion for the next time out. There are three types of parasite units. There's the mist unit, which is a standard combat unit, the armor unit, which is the heavy combat unit, and the camouflage unit, which is a sniper combat unit. The skulls arrive with the mist, and particles can be seen flying around amongst the fog. This is metallic archaea, a type of suborganism with parasite technology that is released by the skulls and allows them to infect and thus control nearby human soldiers. This functions similarly to how the pain controlled bees in Metal Gear Solid 3, another bit recovered by Skullface from Selino Yarsk. The mist and armor units were traditionally armed with G44K bullpup bullpup assault rifles and machetes with the camo unit getting sniper rifles and what looks like solid eyes in place of the assault rifle. It should be noted that late in the game, you can develop parasite gear for Snake to wear, but that gear runs on parasites that can only be obtained by defeating the skulls in missions and extracting their bodies before they disappear. We will talk about each skull encounter as we get to them, but let's talk about this first one now. So, uh, like I mentioned, I think this one is you're encouraged uh, the first time playing through this game is that you're going to get on your horse or just run away from the skulls. You're yeah. not really meant to fight them. 
um, you really don't have strong enough weapons to face off against four of them. If one of them, honestly. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, I did that when I replayed. I ran away too because I tried to play it how you should play, you know, to try and get like a recapture of the experience. But yeah, they're not, they're not, um, well, the mist unit is not terrifically difficult. They're not like, Mm-mm. they're just like tough. They're like, they're like mini boss enemies almost. Yeah, I, I love punching them though. It's very fun. Yeah. They're fun to hit. With all these battles, but including this one, like CQCing these guys is super satisfying. Um, they basically alternate between their gun attacks and their machete attacks. And when they pull out their machete, they slowly start teleporting closer to Snake. And a properly timed CQC counter button um, will have Snake literally rip the machete out of their hands and like stab them pretty gnarly. It's very fun. Yeah, I don't know. It's I'm of two minds because I think I, I like how visually inspired by in universe how inspired by the 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 cobra unit they are like it's very obvious that skullface just took a lot of that gear for his inspiration a lot of that look but i don't like that they they're like i mean did he just give up it was the the response to the uh beauty and the beast unit so negative that he just gave up on having a a, a enemy special forces unit because there's just that's it there's nobody else there's quiet there's these guys Man on Fire and Sahelanthropus. Yeah, Man on Fire is not an enemy. I, I don't know. Man on Fire is not like part of a military unit, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just a, a being that they happen to be able to control briefly. Like, there's no, I guess the only, I guess the child soldier unit is the closest thing to it. But there's no, like, enemy special forces unit with all cool quotes. Like, that's the, the Metal Gear. Like, as much as as much as we we kind of made fun of that to an extent, like that's that's the Metal Gear, not even Metal Gear Solid. That's like the Metal Gear trope of mm-hmm. you know Mega Man style enemies that you defeat, and like it's really when people talk about this game not feeling like Metal Gear, that I think is one of the big things they mean. That and like the Codec calls, which the Codec calls we still have in some form. We just don't really have any form of this, and it's just the skull unit is left. It's it's just strange. It doesn't feel like a unit because there's like sixty of them. Is it a, a battalion? I don't know. So um, I have uh, two, I would say, defenses. One I'm going to save for later because I think the point that you can fight the skulls over and over again is deliberate. Yeah. Uh, not just in the terms of different stages, but even the same battle in different contexts or with extreme difficulty. I think that's supposed to fill in. We're supposed to believe Venom Snake is fighting these battles from 1984 to 1995, not just... Um, up through Sahelanthropus. So that would only work if he's fighting people that aren't going away. Um, and then my other defense has nothing to do with any of that, but um, I spent yesterday replaying all the extreme versions of the Skull Battles, and they are, like, for someone like me, a Metal Gear sicko and someone who's very good at the games, just, like, a really great challenge, even still. Um, they are not easy battles to get through. Oh, they're great battles. Like, they're... I just... There's no, there's, there's not as much character to these characters as you would assume. I think part of that, I think, is the way they were framed in the trailers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in the trailer a lot, like the, the E3 one. And you think that, oh, like, this is, this is like the enemy. Like, we're going to learn, we're going to meet all these characters and get, you know, you don't get the classic Metal Gear death speech. You don't get any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're just, and they're just like slightly cooler enemies. Which yeah, is no, little, I think I think that's it's it's a, it's a it's a mild disappointment. Like it's a thing missing from this game. 
imagine if quiet you could redeploy quiet against be like getting sniper wolf on your team and having her shoot Vulcan Raven. Like that'd be there'd be mm-hmm. pathos there. There'd be something there. I don't know. The skulls are fine. I don't. I, they're they're good. Even I, I think they're fun fights, but they're just they're not characters at all. Oh yeah, definitely not. Once Kaz and Snake are free of the skulls, our boys get to catch up on the last nine years and about what to do next. Kaz tells Snake about his fledgling Diamond Dogs unit, but that it can be the seed to garden into yet another army without a country. This time they aren't a business, but out for revenge for the future that was taken away from them, for the triumph or deaths they were denied. No victory, no defeat, just a lust for revenge. The player will also get a bit of flashback to the Ground Zero's ending and destruction of Mother Base in case they hadn't played that first game. I'll drop in some of Kaz's dialogue here. I'm gonna rebuild it. Make a new place. Together. That we can call home. Yeah, we were dogs, all right. Slinking around, out of sight for sight. Digging up whatever kind of dirty money we could find. You name it, we did it. You see this? Diamond dogs. Our new home. The phantom of our former selves. Triumph. Death. Out either. Yeah. I remember it all. Once reunited with Kaz, Snake can begin rebuilding his army at Mother Base, recruiting soldiers from the battlefield, and most of the open world elements of this game come into play. Upon return to Mother Base, Kaz and Snake vow revenge on Cypher and plan to begin in Afghanistan taking on wet work so they can get a lay of the land and figure out where and how to strike at the heart of Cypher. Snake wants it to be about something more, though. Not about the past, but about fighting for a future as well. This can be viewed as Venom Snake version of Fighting the Times, or even Solid Snake's line about um, building the future and keeping the past alive are one and the same. Ocelot is there to meet you at Kaz and Mother Base, and the medic team takes Miller away for treatment. Ocelot will give you a bit of a tutorial here too, handing you a Fulton and telling you to explore Mother Base and CQC the few guards for practice. After that, it's back to Afghanistan. We are only going to break down the major story missions in detail, but we will mention the others in case there's anything to add. The following two to three main missions have very basic objectives that familiarize you with the main mechanics and environments of the game, teaching you to assassinate, extract, demolish, and exfiltrate. The first is Hero's Way, which is basically you have to eliminate a Spetsnaz commander in the Da Shago Kalai outpost. This mission is given to you by the CIA. It's an assassinate or extract mission. Almost all of these I tend to extract unless I'm doing a difficult difficulty or a timed playthrough. Wow, you love you love supporting the CIA torture uh, yeah, uh, regime. <laughs> Uh, when we when we say extract, we mean extract them to mother base and not back to the CIA, just <laughs> to be clear. Um, but here in this mission, you start hearing about disappearances near Smazai base, um, Da Smazai Laman, as it's known, which is where the honeybee mission takes place, which we'll talk about before the end of this episode. 
but they start layering in some of what's going on with the bigger plot. C2W is uh, basically a basic demolition mission. You are to destroy the comms equipment in the Eastern Communications Outpost. It basically teaches you how to spot and then take out radio equipment, mm-hmm. um, wh- whether it's like the various satellite dishes in a base or the actual like radio comm center that's usually inside a building. It's a very small base that's like worked or built into a mountain. Yeah. So it's got a lot of elevation. You can climb over the mountains on the other side using cracks to like get in behind the base. Um, I tend to use C4. And um, one thing I'm going to highlight as we go through is that the missions that have like a more difficult mission, um, like a more difficult version of the mission near the end of the game, Mm -hmm. I'm going to call out here. Um, C2W is one that has a subsistence style mission which is full OSP, no camo, no buddy. Um, you have to go in and destroy this stuff by defeating soldiers, acquiring their weapons, and then getting in and out as you will. Yeah, this was fun. I, I like, um, this is the first one I had like trouble with because I, I, it, this one made me uh, get better at the actual stealth because I kept getting caught. I had to run away a bunch and hide and kept calling. I, uh, I almost went bankrupt at the start of the game because I called in. I didn't under, I didn't get how expensive it was to call in Pequot. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah, did that a few times. I had fun with this one. Um, the subsistence one was easier because by that point, by that point, not only had I gotten better at this game, I'd also um, kind of had the, uh, the, the, I guess, playing Hitman forces you to be good at finding communications depots and disabling them. So I just sort of started doing that like by early 2016, which is when I think I did all the the other stuff in this, I had become better at like just that kind of preparation for stealth games, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that F I basically know, especially on my first playthrough and my real playthrough of this game, I always took out the comms equipment everywhere I went. I did after this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty demolition crazy. I would like C4 like uh, watchtowers and stuff just so they wouldn't be standing or like light units. Uh, so like outposts wouldn't have like a light post or something. I'd shot those out a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a lot of fun. And usually if you demolish stuff like that, they do eventually repair them, but not for several missions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can usually come back to these maps and they won't have that infrastructure in place. And I, I actually really like the subsistence mission. Um, it is kind of difficult in that you don't have any explosives or demolition stuff, so you do have to really plan out a strategy and then make your way. And usually, since it's a post, you know, it's an endgame mission, like post-Sahelanthropus, um, all the enemies will have helmets and strong weapons. Um, they're generally just smarter AI <laughs> um, at this point. Uh, so it, it's it's difficult, but it's a lot of fun. There's landmines surrounding the mountain passes um so you can't just sneak in behind i think like you're saying this teaches you stealth really well um because it teaches you how to work with elevation and how lines of sight change with that um because there's all sorts of high ground that people are able to see you even if you have good cover um so it's a really good way to orient you with the verticality of this game the next mission is over the fence which is you're rescuing the bionics expert who created your prosthetic hand um, this guy may have worked on Sahelanthropus because Sahelanthropus has um, a hand very similar to the one Venom Snake has. This is also a base that's kind of up on a mountain, but you just follow the road up or you can climb some cracks nearby. Um, and then it's just basically a basic uh, 
like under construction base that you have to infiltrate into the basement to get this guy out. Um, because he's inside in the basement, you can't just Fulton extract him where he is. You actually have to um, move him outside of the base so you can extract him. There is a hole in the ceiling nearby there because there's a side op mission where it's like extract the man through the hole in the ceiling. And if you place him right under there, you can fold him out cleanly. Um, this one also has a uh, post-end game version of the mission with a higher difficulty. Um, it's a total stealth, I believe, meaning you can't be spotted at all and there's no reflex mode. Um, it instantly goes into a uh, mission failed status if you do get spotted. Um, and the interesting thing here is, so you... So when you actually go into the mission, Miller tells you this guy is a mechanics expert. Um, and then when you get him, this guy starts speaking to you in a language you don't know um, because you just don't have that language translator yet. And you extract him or whatever. And then after the mission, Miller tells you, he's like, oh, he's actually not a mechanics expert. He's a bionics expert, which might mean he has some overlap with some of the parasite research that was being mm -hmm. that was happening. Um, but when you come back and play this mission at the in the end game version, um, you have the translator so you can hear the words as he's saying them. And he speaks specifically as like, oh, I was brought in to do bionics work and this, that or another. So um, they're having a little fun with the languages and at what point you can understand what's actually going on in this game. It's um, uh, uh, near Tomato did that. That's the other game I can think of that did something like that, where the first playthrough you play as as 2B, the main character, and she is a combat unit entirely. And she has no she has no like translation software. So all the enemies will yell at you, like all the bosses will yell things at you and you just ignore them and kill them. And on the second playthrough, you play as as 9S, the the the, the small little boy, the, the little boy, the shorts boy. <laughs> And he is specifically an intelligence unit, so he understands everything they're saying. And, and the dialogue is not always like what makes it interesting is you, you would assume that the dialogue would just be like, please don't kill me. I'm a robot. But it's more complicated than that. Like a lot of it is like vicious, angry things they yell at you. My favorite one being the uh, one of the bosses who who performs her gender. She's 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 dressing up in it. She's wearing a dress made of uh, dead people. You know, because oh, uh, because near, but she's wearing a dress and she's begging you to look at her, and the camera will not allow you to look at her, and it drives her crazy. Like she becomes crazier and crazier as the fight goes on because you are not looking at her perform her gender. So who is she performing it for? And it's really um, that was the point in that game where I was like, "What's this? Is an interesting game." So yeah, that that, that kind of stuff. Great. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of uh, hidden stuff like that in games. Especially for the, you know, 1% of player, the player base who will actually understand the joke immediately. Big fan of that. Mm -hmm. And then one last thing is right around here is when you'll find D-Dog for the first time as there a little pupper. Um, and he will, uh, I think he takes two to three missions before he grows into a full-size dire wolf, essentially. Um, and at that point, you can actually deploy with him on missions. And he's a very useful buddy, as we talked about in our opening episode. He's the goat. Where do the bees sleep is the next mission that matters, with Snake making his way to Smazai base that the player had heard chatter about earlier. The honeybee is a new rocket launcher weapon developed by the CIA to be given over to the Mujahideen, but with all the Hamid fighters disappearing from Smazai base, the CIA feared that the new tech would fall into Soviet hands. The honeybee is a stand-in for the Stinger missile, a staple of MGS games since Shadow Moses. But with Kojima no longer using real-world weapon names, the Stinger became the Honeybee. Q. 
cute. This also has a real-world analog, which we'll talk about next time. This mission is a fairly long one, working through several Soviet encampments and tracking down a lone Hamid survivor who will give you more concrete directions to Smazai base. While we've seen several Soviet bases and outposts, this is easily the most heavily fortified so far. There even is a chopper overhead. The Smazai base is a big open veil amongst the mountains, with a network of caves behind it, and caves apparently full of diamonds. This is a great area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just like the the little outposts like in the canyon, in the in mm-hmm. Beggar's I Canyon. Know exactly what you mean. Around it. Where you shoot raw we could shoot womp rats. That's immediately what I thought when I went there. If you didn't <laughs> think that I don't like you. No, I love that area. And then I love the big open like you said, the little open veil is one of the best areas for like big, huge open fights in the in the first mm-hmm. part of the game. And then, yeah, the caves, I love that cave system. It's just cool. It just looks, it's really the thing. It's, again, the Fox engine really singing. It, this is this is the stuff It really, really looks, a lot of games, a lot of game engines are bad at rendering natural phenomenon. Um, it's just hard for them to, it's hard for them to not make it look like something someone made, something someone made in a level designer. And the Fox engine really, I mean, all the craggy, like the, the cliffside areas at oh, Camp Omega, all that stuff, all the crags and little nooks and crannies and all that. It just looks great. It's really what makes this game, this area of this game really stand out to me, too. It's just these little. Uh, it just it just looks right. I don't know. My brain accepts it unconditionally. There's also a reason that many of the side ops in the game are stationed in this location. Mm. Um, just because it's a very fun map to use multiple times. It's great for firefights. It's great for, um, it's not great for stealth, but because it has such a big open area, it makes it very interesting how you navigate it as a stealth player. Mm. You can come into it from different angles, so you can use it mm-hmm. for different missions, make it, make it seem like it's a new location. In the back of the caves, Snake will find the honeybee weapon. As he makes his way out of the caverns, a mist falls over the outpost, and Snake watches as Baby Mantis floats past him. Then, with a slight roar, a giant hand, not unlike Snake's prosthetic, snatches him up. Upon coming to, Snake finds himself hanging upside down, still in the grip of the giant mechanical hand, and in walks our antagonist, showing himself for the first time. Sadly, there's no upside-down kiss like in 2002 Spider-Man by Sam Raimi. Does he have lips? I don't know, that'd be, that'd be unpleasant, I think. You look well-rested, big boss. My, my, how you've changed. You became a demon for such little weapons as that. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll see the bigger picture. Eventually. If you get out of here alive. Rest in peace this time. I'll see you in hell, boss. The giant hand drops Snake, 
picks up Skullface, and the entire thing walks away. This, of course, is Sahelanthropus, this game's doomsday mech. But that discussion is for another day. The mist and parasites are still here, which means it's time for another fight with the skulls. This time you're encouraged to fight, though you can still run away from this battle if you want. So playing through this uh, mission initially, um, one of the side mission objectives is to like recover the honeybee with all the ammo, but you just really don't have that many great weapons at this point. So at a certain point, Kaz is like, let's see what the honeybee can do, and you're encouraged to actually take it out and yeah. start using it to blow up these guys. Um, it's a pretty fun fight. It's very standard. This is the mist unit, so they're not armored. Um, they're not terribly difficult if you kind of know what you're doing. Um, you just have to be ready for them to be hopping all over the map. They are frightening. Yeah, like I said, the first couple of times, you, it's classic Metal Gear. Like The first couple of times you fight against... Metal Gear Rex, you're like, I, there's no way I can ever defeat this boss. And then 10 minutes later, you, you can figure it out. That's, I mean, that's what you want with difficulty in video games. That's, I mean, that's the uh, from software design philosophy. Mm-hmm. How many times in, in any, I mean, I, I just in Dark Souls 1, there's probably 10 different bosses where I was like, there's no way I'll ever beat this boss. This is impossible. And then I, you know, you, you figure it out. Your, the pattern recognition centers of your brain start firing and you understand what you're looking at. Which is really, that's the great way to design a boss, and it's why these guys are fun to fight. Like, I, I criticize them as, like, characters, because they aren't. But they are very fun. It's never, I was never upset when they just, they didn't know how to end a mission, so they just had you fight the skulls. Because I was never, it's always, <laughs> it's always at least entertaining. It's also always a good, a good place, if you play more stealthy, like, I think we both played in this one. It's a good place to just unload some ammo. Yeah, you got a lot mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, I think this game is like so mechanically satisfying and mm-hmm. also you get so many great weapons and so many, um, you know, fun weapons to play with that giving you these kind of crazy enemies that kind of fly around the skin, but you can still pretty much track. Um, and then because like I'm like full out, like doing the L3 sprint during a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff, running around then diving behind something, healing a bit, reloading, popping back up. Like these are like very frenetic and kinetic sequences that I really like. Um, and I also like what you mentioned about how it's meant to be somewhat scary or horror-inspired. Uh, um, I can't remember if I mentioned it, but any like normal soldiers that are in the maps when these guys show up essentially uh, become zombies. Um, they get taken over by the metallic archaea or parasites that are flying around. Um, they don't like hurt you too badly, but they can grab you or like knife you, which is just really annoying when you're trying to focus on the skulls. Um, and then just the fact that the first time we saw the skulls in that opening phantom limbs mission you're encouraged to run away um i think that kind of puts something in the back of your mind that these guys are like beyond you Mm -hmm. um so that's why you like the first time i had to face these guys in this mission in 2015 september i was like oh shit oh shit i'm never gonna get past this these guys are ridiculous um and i even i think i tried running away but the veil is so big that they just catch up with you um, and you don't have the health or like the strength in your sneaking suit to really fight against them yet. So um, I think it's like pretty great. But this one relative to the other ones is like significantly easier, but probably for obvious reasons. I did try to do that when I just played a couple a couple months ago. I did just run away to see how long I could escape. And I managed to actually escape. <laughs> if you can get out of the veil. You uh, I think I had to shoot one guy down. Yeah, I think I had to shoot one guy down with the honeybee. And then I then I got out. Like they they ask you to sometimes run or say that running is a good option, but these guys are super fast that 
it's hard to just like blanket run out of there. Some you usually have to give them the slip somehow, or like actually possibly blow one away, or just hurt them enough that um, you can put some distance between you and them. So after the battle, Kaz and Snake still don't have much intel on Skullface, as they still refer to him as the man with the skull for a face. They've started to piece together that he was behind the attack on Mother Base nine years ago as well, but little else is clear to them. That's not the only confusing part. Skullface was wiping out the Hamid fighters without bloodshed somehow, and they have no clue as to how he's been doing that. This is a tease for Skullface's ethnic cleansers, his vocal cord parasites, but that's a reveal for another episode. mission complete for this episode our frequency is podcast sans frontiers at gmail.com and at pod sans front on twitter and instagram you can support the remaining episodes of podcast sans frontiers by signing up for patreon.com slash my bro my cat my pod which is my lord of the rings podcast where i'm covering the lord of the rings and the rings of power you can also check me out uh covering a song of ice and fire and house of the dragon over at the nonacast asoiaf and I do that all under the name of Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I am Brian. <laughs> if you like the NBA draft, follow me on Twitter. That's all I have. Also, it is no nation we inhabit, but a language. Uh, if you follow the NBA, I recommend you follow Brian regardless. Do you like pictures of, of my cat? Yeah. I mean, if you're following me for pictures of my cat, you just get even more of that with uh, Brian. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands.